this week on the Backtable Podcast. At, at one point, <laughs> uh, I was watching the monitors and he was going over the main pulmonary artery into the right pulmonary artery with the 24-inch catheter, and I was watching it. And, you know, that's, that's, yeah. that's a move that sometimes can, you know, be a little iffy, a little little uh, scary, uh, but he did it with ease. And I said to him, wow, nice move. And then he took his head away from where he was looking. He looked at me, he said, are you watching this? And I said, yes, I am. And he told me afterwards, that's that's when he became more nervous than ever. He's never oh, been I more bet. nervous in a case when he realized one of his best friends was on the table being treated by him and was watching every move that he made. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. First, a brief message from our sponsor. ClosureFast Radio Frequency Ablation System, the technology you know and trust, is now offered in a lower six-inch profile. Find out from Medtronic engineers what a lower profile means for flexibility, navigation, and kink resistance at medtronic.com slash closurefast6f. Embracing innovation, enhancing outcomes. Greetings to our esteemed IR community. Today's podcast is proudly sponsored by Varian, a Siemens health and ears company. Picture a future where cutting-edge interventional technologies are seamlessly integrated with world-class imaging tools that are designed to reshape procedural efficiency, enhance precision, and foster patient-centered care and interventional radiology. Because that's our vision at Varian, and we're working with partners across Siemens Health and Ears to bring it to life. At Varian, we are in hot pursuit of efficiency and superior outcomes. Our evolving portfolio is reshaping ablation and embolization procedures with tools that offer intuitive, unique capabilities. Imagine a world without fear of cancer, where Varian solutions empower you to deliver individualized, high-quality treatments. Solutions like Embazine and Oncazine, our line of precisely calibrated microspheres designed to enable super-selective, targeted embolization. What sets our Embazine and Oncazine microspheres apart? Features that enhance procedural and cost efficiency, like precise calibration and syringes that contain more microspheres per volume, which means fewer syringes per procedure, an innovation that aligns seamlessly with Varian's commitment to efficiency. And Embazine microspheres offer a broad spectrum of 10 sizes, each identified by distinctive colors, facilitating swift and precise visualization of suspension. This streamlines the process and also minimizes the potential for errors. So experience the future of interventional radiology with Varian. Check out our innovative solutions at varian.com interventional. Varian, a Siemens health and ears company, we pioneer breakthroughs in healthcare for everyone, everywhere, sustainably. Now, back to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast. Today, we've got a great episode, a very special episode with Dr. Elon Raioli. He's going to be telling us about his experience as a patient suffering a PE and the effect that it had on his practice. Welcome, Elon. Thank you for having me, Aaron. I want to start by saying I'm a huge fan, and I really appreciate being part of this. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, man. There was a couple of people that highly recommended having you on for this topic. It was... Um, Venkat, Venkat Tumala is the one oh, yeah. who said, hey, you got to have Elon on the show to tell a story. But first, just the way we start things out, I want you to tell us about where you're at and what your practice looks like. Sure. I'm an interventional radiologist down in Miami. I've been practicing now down here in a community, private space with the training programs, not for radiology or IR, but for a lot of medicine and other subspecialties of that. 
for about 12 years now. I'm, I'm a solo practitioner. I do have some uh, partners to cover for me when I'm on vacation, but I generally practice alone in the hospital. We're almost a 400-bed hospital, and it's, it's a very busy practice. I do focus a lot on interventional oncology and most recently over the past five years on the treatment of venous thromboembolic disease. And th that really is my passion. Uh, and we've built a very successful PERT program over the past five years and have treated a ton of patients and now have sort of gone into the VTE space more and treating DVT as well. And we have a very robust program that we've treated a ton of patients in every sort of way and we have very good success. So my passion lays in the minimally invasive treatment of venous thrombolic uh, disease. And also I do all the whole gamut of IR interventions, whatever comes my way. That's super interesting. It reminds me of, I don't, I don't know if you uh, listened to the episode with Doug Hidley. He was, I think, solo practitioner, hospital-based, kind of built it from zero. How did you end up down there just by yourself in this hospital-based program? I grew up down here in Miami. I went to University of Miami Medical School. I went away for college, came back from medical school here. And you know, I went away to New York to do my training, my internship, my residency and fellowship, always with the eye sort of coming back really can't beat the area for lifestyle. And my parents are from here. Obviously, my, my sister lives here. So it was, it was sort of a no-brainer that I would eventually come back. So I did train up in New York. But as soon as the opportunity came down to return here, I chose it. At the time that I made the transition, it, it was a difficult time for radiology, interventional radiology. There were not many jobs available. So I did sort of jump on the first one that I could. And it ended up being a perfect fit for me because I was able to grow a practice the way I wanted it to be and sort of formulated in my eye, in my image. And it's been incredibly rewarding and I'm very happy with where it is today. Yeah. I, I remember coming out of training about a decade. I came out about a decade ago. So, very, you know, similar, I'm probably a couple year or two behind you. And you're right. There weren't many jobs out there. I, I actually looked at a couple in Florida, but just to keep the family together, I ended up doing this uh, position in Dallas. But yeah, it was it was a tough market at that mm -hmm. time, around that time for sure. So let's jump into the story. Set the scene for us, right? Tell us sort of like leading up to uh, what happened because it was it was you had had COVID, so it's relatively recent in the last couple of years, right? right? But let's set the yeah. scene for the audience how this unfolded. Sure. So as a person who treats PE almost on a daily basis, or at least some sort of ET on a daily basis. It really was an eye-opening experience for me because, well, I'll get into the story, but basically I had COVID in May of last year for the first time. And right after that, I hurt my back in a very traumatic golfing accident, just overuse injury. Um, and uh, it really, it, it laid me up for a while. I was in bed for about six weeks, really, really limited in motion. I got better, obviously, with some steroid shots. But then I took an international trip a couple of weeks later, a couple of months later. This was now early August, and of course, it was recumbent for a while and really not being too careful in terms of making sure my calf was exercised well. So I got back in August of last year, and for about a month after that, I would have these transient episodes of tachycardia and sort of tachyarrhythmias and chest pain and shortness of breath, but they would really last for a few seconds and then pass fairly quickly. I didn't really think much of it until they stretch into the second of, or third week. I made an appointment with a friend of mine who's a cardiologist. We did a full cardiology workup, and based on my history and based on the negative results of echo, EKG, labs, et cetera, he diagnosed me as a post-COVID myocarditis, pericarditis, uh -huh. 
And we sort of left it at that. I just started taking metoprolol for my tachyarrhythmias, which it did control. Then it was early September that I woke up one morning right before work, and I literally could not catch my breath. I transitioned to a sitting up position, and that just that motion itself caused me to almost faint by lack of oxygen. But, you know, like, like, a, like a good enriched radiologist, I, I, I sort of soldiered on, and I didn't really think that this could be PE. There was not something that entered my mind in, in the first. I really was hoping it was not. I was trying to pray that it was anything else but that because I knew that would involve you know, a more advanced intervention or a longer hospital stay and being out of work for a while. So right. I went to work which was a struggle to get to my car in the parking garage and to drive over and even to walk. And I even did four cases in the morning. There were, you know, thyroid biopsies and little cases, but it was a huge, huge struggle. And at one point I said, you know, I really can't keep going. I'm just going to go home and lay down and sleep it off. Very, very silly. And, but just like a, just like a doctor, the worst patients, you know, but thank God my nurse manager at the time was a close friend of mine. She said to me, Doc, you, you can't go home. You have to get this worked up. You don't know what it is, and it could be something bad. So I yeah. I reluctantly agreed. I went to my ultrasound tech, the head ultrasound tech where I work, and I said, please scan my heart. I think I have a pericardial effusion. Hmm. I was hoping it was a pericardial effusion because then I could just drain myself and go straight back to work. Oh my gosh. Uh, it wasn't a pericardial effusion, and it was at that point where, you know, <laughs> really narrowed my differential and I was pretty sure of what I had, but I was still refusing to believe it. I did yeah. go to the ER and I said, you know, we have a code perk program in my hospital. I said, I need you to call a code perk to the ER physician. And he said, for which patient? I said, no, for me, I'm the patient. So the whole mechanism was set in motion. I got a bed, got my IV, got my CT scan, which did show a large saddle embolus with occlusive wow. emboli to nearly all the lobes. My troponins were positive, my BNP was positive, my lactic acid was significantly elevated, and I was put on heparin immediately, thank God. But I was in a quandary now because I was the only one who did thrombectomy at my hospital, and I was very sure that I wanted thrombectomy. I was very clear that I didn't want anything else, which I felt would undertreat the disease process that I have based on the experience I had treating these patients for, for many years at that point. The best results I received, I, I got on my patients was when I did large pore th- uh, aspiration thrombectomy. So that was what I decided I wanted done. I called my partner who was at a different hospital at the time, and I asked him if he would come in and do the procedure on me. But unfortunately, he was laid up with a back injury himself, so he couldn't help out. So it was this point where I turned to one of my best friends who I'd known for many years and respected greatly, uh, Ripal Gandhi at Miami Vascular. And I called him and we played the same game. I said, you know, Rip, I have a PE I want you to treat. And he didn't skip a beat. And he said, what's the name of the patient? And I said, yeah, unfortunately, it's me. I'm the patient. You know, there was a real hesitation there because it was very difficult for him to grasp that one of his friends and one of us, you know, one of our a doctor like us was the patient. So, but he recovered quickly and he said, you know what? No problem. I'll arrange everything on my end. So I was in my ER at my hospital. He arranged transportation on a heparin trip. I was diagnosed probably 11 a.m. I got to his hospital maybe two hours later. He had an emergency procedure to do, and I was fairly stable at that time. So I, he got me on the table pretty much around 6 or 7 p.m., and then uh, and then the procedure followed, which was... So I want to pause right there because I want to... I told a couple of docs that I was having you on and everybody's like just you know in awe about this story and 
what I want to know is you had two, so you got diagnosed, you looked at your own imaging, you knew what you had, you knew what needed to be done. You called Ripple and you still had to wait around for two or three hours to go over there. How did you deal with that anxiety? I mean, knowing that that saddle endless is in there basically about to take your life and you got to, you know, you don't heparin, you're being treated, but still how severe it is. Tell us about that feeling, that time, you know, that you had to sit there and wait. You know, that, that's a very interesting question because, well, at the time, to be honest with you, I was not nervous at all. I had sort of disengaged myself from the whole experience. It was too much. I think it was too much, too quickly, and I couldn't deal with it. And so I sort of saw myself like a third person observer and I was viewing everything going on from a detached perspective. Because I, I think that if I had to deal with everything in the immediacy of the moment, it would have been too much to handle and I would have freaked out. But that was good because it allowed me to handle all the stops and starts and the pauses and everything that happens on a, uh, you know, with any patients who are treated. It happens naturally. You know, we all wish we could be treated one minute after diagnosis, but the reality is that that doesn't happen. But it allowed me to deal with these pauses in a constructive manner rather than a destructive manner, which could, could have could have happened as well. But yeah, it was it was funny because I didn't get nervous until everything was over, until I'd been treated successfully and dis and then discharged from the hospital. That's when I started realizing how close I had become to being dead or or at least well, severely. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Imagine you know. if you had gone home to sleep it sleep it off, right? Exactly. I mean your nurse manager basically saved your life by saying, nah, I think you should go to the ER. You know? Exactly. Exactly. It was it's it crazy. was her who saved my life because I really would have. I I'm the worst patient as most doctors <laughs> are, and I really felt like let me just go sleep it off. I'll be better in a few hours. And the reality was, I probably wouldn't have woken up. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. I mean, based off of the size of it, and it's just to back up to what your symptoms were leading up. I mean, it sounded like you you probably had a bunch of microemboli, right? They were showering. Mm -hmm. That's what I believe. Yeah. Did they check your legs? Did you have a bunch sure. of clot, or was there a nitus somewhere? Right. So that's a very good point. So, you know, I, I didn't mention, but about in 2014 or 2015, I did have a provoked DVT. So, but I have no, no genetic hypercoagulability or thrombophilia or anything like that. I was all tested at the time I worked up was negative, but I did have a provoked DVT from uh, long travel and being, you know, immobile during the time. So, uh, and the mix of alcohol in the, in the, with it all didn't help too. So, uh, so I, but that at that time when I had the DBT, I had felt it. My leg was very swollen and there was a lot of pain and immobility and it was red and hot. And I, I knew I had a DBT and it was diagnosed as a popliteal vein DBT on the right and treated with anticoagulation. And I did well. However, this time I didn't feel any symptoms in my legs. I had absolutely zero symptoms. And even after the PE, when they did the ultrasound, they found that I had bilateral DVT, not, not large, it localized to the left pop and the right pop and a little bit in the SFV, but there was DVT. And that's one of the things that was so scary to me is that we can have DVT as patients and even as doctors who know this disease process and not recognize it. It is not as easy as look out for leg swelling and redness and pain for DVT. Really, I think we should be a little more aggressive than that and say when p patients have risk factors to DVT, they should immediately have higher surveillance. Yeah. Well, let's go back to we're in the middle, basically the middle story. You're on the table. Ripoll's about to get started. Can you tell us how the treatment went? Because it sounds like you, you were, were you conscious sedation? Yes. 
I didn't want to be intubated. Obviously, it's not a good idea to intubate PE patients anyway, but I did not want to be intubated. And I wanted to be awake for the whole thing because I wanted to to judge my friend's technique, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I did, I was under conscious sedation, but I did, you know, ask for monitors to watch as the procedure went by. And I did ask, specific, you know, it was funny because when I got to the hospital, Miami Vascular is a, is a very research-based institution. They, they follow a lot of protocols. They run a lot of randomized controlled trials and prospective trials, et cetera. So he, when I got there, he did ask me, listen, I have to ask you this question. I know what your answer is going to be, but I have to ask you, would you want to be treated with heparin? Would you want to have no treatment? Would you want to be treated with lysis? We have these trials going with these, with these devices, et cetera. And I said, yeah, I'm going to stop you there. I really came here to, for you to treat me with large bore aspiration thrombectomy with the Inari flow treatment device. And that is what I want. Because that's, that's what you use. That's what you're familiar with. Correct. That's what I'm very familiar with. And that's what I have anecdotally, I have the best results with. So I was pretty clear that that's the way I wanted to be treated. And, you know, I've done a lot of these cases and I know that putting in a large bore catheter is not, it's not trauma free. It can be painful. And so I knew all the things going in, but I was amazed at how I really didn't feel anything. Uh, when they put the large bore catheter in, I felt almost nothing. I was well numb, felt no pain, very little pressure. When they crossed the right heart, nothing felt nothing. They did do pulmonary pressures, which that was the only time I was scared during the procedure because my systolic pulmonary pressure uh, main, in the main pulmonary was, was over 90. And when I heard that, I was, you know, I began to get scared because that's not a number that happens acutely. It's a number that happens with chronic pulmonary hypertension. And I was scared that it would never normalize and I would have to live with the, with the pulmonary hypertension results of this for a long time and, you know, have life curtailed and have to, you know, be a sick patient forever. But the procedure went amazingly well. As I said, I didn't feel anything. We removed a, not we, sorry, Dr. Gandhi, Ripal removed a ton of clot. I felt like I was part of it though, you know, because I, you know, I, I participated too. At, at one point, <laughs> uh, I was watching the monitors and he was going over the main pulmonary artery into the right pulmonary artery with the 24 French catheter. And I was watching it. And, you know, that's, that's, yeah. that's a move that sometimes can, you know, be a little iffy, a little, little uh, scary. Uh, but he did it with ease. And I said to him, wow, nice move. And then he, he, he took his head away from where he was looking. He looked at me, he said, are, are you watching this? And I said, yes, <laughs> I am. And he told me afterwards, that's, that's when he became more nervous than ever. He's never been oh, more bet. nervous in a case when he realized one of his best friends was on the table being treated by him and was watching every move that he made. So, you know, he removed basically all the clot. We wow. got a, a ton of clot out. My pulmonary pressures after, right after the procedures were in the 60s, still very high and very scary. But I do have some, some very positive uh, results of my follow-ups. So. Good, good. And so it sounds like everything went pretty smooth overall. How long did the procedure take with you on the table? I think it probably took an hour, maybe an hour and a half. It was fairly quick. And I, you know, they closed me up with a suture and I was transferred immediately to the ICU. I spent two days in the ICU being, you know, seen by other physicians, vascular medicine, cardiology, pulmonology, et cetera, and uh, was discharged a day after that. So I think I was a total hospital for three days. And, um, you know, I, I took a week off. I, I wanted to go back the day that I got back from the hospital, but of course no one would let me. And uh, so I took an extra week off, which for me is, is a lot to be at home sick and invalid with, uh, with no work to do. So it was kind of hard to adapt. But I, you know, I came back 
to work after a month, after a week, and uh, and I did well. I mean, I felt nothing. My, I was completely symptom free. I, I was completely back to normal. Was there a sudden change in how you felt? Like all of a sudden, you could catch your breath. You, I mean, tell us about that before and after. As soon as that clots out, you know, you're in recovery. Was it like, oh my god, I feel so much better? So I didn't feel any change during the. To be fair, I already felt better when I was transferred to Miami Vascular. On the way there, I started feeling better. I think the heparin had maybe helped a little bit. And also, I realized that at that point that I was going to get the treatment that I wanted and I was in good hands. So a lot of the anxiety went away. So I started feeling better. Nothing changed during the procedure. I think I was still in a heightened state that I was worried about the outcome and worried about you know the procedure. But as soon as I went to my room, I felt like a new person. I, I really felt like I could catch my breath. I, in fact, I stood up and walked around and oh, wow. I said, I feel back to normal, you know? Uh, and it was... You're like, when can I get out of here? <laughs> and I wanted to get out of here or so. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. it was this darn six-minute walking test that I kept having to do to, oh, you know, to, yeah, to be discharged. And actually, the first time I did it, I, I didn't do well. I, I was, uh, my motor said, did drop. But the next day, I, I passed with flying colors. So although I felt better immediately, it was a little bit time since until I was clinically better. Yeah, so tell us about that recovery. I mean, it sounds like you, you you felt good, but obviously the numbers said something different. Tell us about that. Like, how does the follow up work? Are you following up with Miami Vascular, or, or did you find did you follow up with somebody at your own hospital? Right. So I, I did both. I followed up with a cardiologist at my hospital and with a vascular medicine doctor who was referred to me by Ray Paul, an incredible, wonderful guy, amazing doctor. Who, you know, we talked at length about what to do, how to improve myself, and a program of anticoagulation, exercise, diet, et cetera, that I followed to a T. And I went for my four four or five month follow-up echo and uh, my pulmonary pressures were completely normal. That's amazing. They had normalized over the past, over the last four or five months, which shocked him and shocked me because he was sure that I would be dealing with consequences of this for the rest of my life, some sort of chronic pulmonary hypertension. And we were ready to, to tackle whatever came any way we could However, we were shocked when you know, I had no tricuspid regurgitation. My pulmonary pressures were completely normal. And I had a CTA follow-up, which showed complete resolution of all clot. There was nothing left. My pulmonary arteries had gone back to normal size. My right heart had gone back to normal size. I was suffering from big right heart strain. I think my RVLV ratio was 1.8 uh, at the time of the exam uh, of the CTA, but it had gone back down to normal. So everything normalized despite the chronic appearance of my disease process. So this to me is what has, is the most amazing part of all this, that we, you know, sometimes we think that these patients are, yes, we can treat them in the acute phase, but they're, you know, they're going to suffer the effects of this for a long time. So what's the point of treating them so aggressively? They're still going to have long-term problems. They don't just put them on anticoagulation. It's not really much difference. But the truth is that you can normalize patients who have chronic issues. So I'm a testament to that. That's incredible. And so have you gotten been able to get back to actual exercise and yeah, golf yeah. and activity, like normal daily activities? Normal. So yeah, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a swimmer. Uh, I, I was a swimmer when I was younger. Uh, I swam for, my co- for college and everything, and uh, I do that for working out. And it took me about maybe a month to get back into the water, not because I felt like I couldn't do it, but I was just scared. But I, I took right back to it. I, I do that now pretty regularly. I play golf all the time, and I lead a completely normal life, except for the fact that I'm on an anticoagulant. But you know, I can live with that. Just a single. Yeah, I'm on Zorelto, ten milligrams, the half dose, and um, doing great. Yeah, 
Fantastic. I've since traveled long-term. I've done a lot of things with some risk factors for my disease, but I've done pretty well. Are there things that make you nervous, like getting on a long flight, stuff like that? You know, it, it they do, yes. Getting a long flight is one of those things that does make me nervous. I do take double dose of my medication when I do have to travel long flights. I have one coming up that I'm going to do the same thing for. But, you know, I make sure to keep active. I make sure to do my calf exercise during the flight and uh, and everything go, has gone well. Yeah. So now that you've lived through this experience, incredible experience, thank you for sharing. Sure. How does this change? Because, I mean, you you've treated these patients before and after you suffered this. How has it changed your practice and how you approach these patients and how you talk to the patients? Right. So that's that, that's a very good point. You know, I, it really has changed me, changed me as a person and as a physician a lot. As physicians, you know, we treat a whole bunch of different disease processes, especially as interventional radiologists. We cover everything, but we don't really understand what patients go through when they have the disease process. We can sort of commiserate with them when they have cancer and we realize it's a terminal diagnosis and it's awful, and we're going to treat their liver cancer or treat kidney cancer, et cetera, but it's no guarantee. And in fact, the best we can do often is palliate them, but we don't understand what that means to the patient and how scared patients are. And I got a firsthand look at not just how scared they are before the procedures, but also after, that this is a longitudinal disease. This is not a one-time stop, and these patients have to be taken care of in a more compassionate way than we've been doing. That's one thing. Another thing that's really changed a lot is to make me more aggressive in my treatment. I found that patients who have substantial amount of clot and may not have the associated risk factors to subcategorize them as an intermediate submassive or submass or, or massive pulmonary embolism, but maybe they're submassive low risk or intermediate risk. But if they have a ton of clot, I still feel like it's the right thing to do to take this clot out. Because why would you want to leave clot out, clot there? That will it may some may some of it may resolve, but a lot of it won't. You know, when you look at not just my clot, but the experience I've had in removing clots in many patients, most of the clot is not acute. Most of it is subacute and chronic, and will not wash away with with any lytics or with continued heparin. But will probably just get endothelialized and cause some sort of uh, obstructive pulmonary arterial disease. So why would you want that for any patients when you can safely and quickly treat these patients? So I've been more aggressive in treating these patients. The third way it's improved my practice is that it's made me, of course, more compassionate and more understanding. And I can talk to these patients with the experience of having been through it myself. So I understand what these patients are thinking, what they're facing, and how to talk to them to make them feel more comfortable about their disease, about their procedure, and about the follow-up care and the long-term outcomes that they will have. Yeah. Do you share the fact that you went through this with them? When I you're always do. In pre-op? Yeah, I, I do. Think I so. think it's very yeah. important. I think it's a, it's a yeah. unique perspective that I have, and I think it, it's, it's a disservice not to share with patients that I've gone through it, and, and I know what they're feeling, and I know what questions they have, and I know how to answer the questions that they have. Yeah. And, you know, for those of us who, that's the majority, I would assume, the, those of us who have not suffered through that but are still treating these patients, any advice, you know, to give other endovascular specialists, whether it be cardiology, we have cardiology listeners, we have vascular surgery, IR listeners, obviously, either private practice or academics, they're part of a PERT team, you know, they treat these patients. Any advice that you can give them other than what, you, you know, you just mentioned that has changed your practice? Sure. Um, you know, I, yeah, I... I think that the most important thing to do is to reassure patients that they have a disease that 
you know, is morbid and can cause long-term problems, but we also have a successful treatment that is available for them that is safe and effective. Of course, nothing is 100% safe, and there are always risks. This is if patients with PE are sick, you know, whether we like to admit it or not, they're very sick, and even patients with submassive intermediate risk or low-risk PE can die. You know, the right heart is a finicky structure, and it can fail at any moment. So that's one thing you need to get across. That is, an, it is a very pathologic disease process, a very morbid disease process that can have bad outcomes. But at the same time, we do have successful treatment methods that can treat this minimally invasively and safely. For me, the thing that really made my experience even better than it was was bedside manner of the physician. You know, we often we're often in a rush. You know, we're, being a physician nowadays is is means juggling a ton of responsibilities and a ton of work each day. And it's not just patient care. It's a lot of administrative research and all sorts of other uh, responsibilities that we have. And, and, and it sort of takes our attention away for, for what we're mostly there for, which is treating patients. But a few well-placed words of encouragement, of commiseration, of understanding, of empathy that you can have for your patients make all the difference. And that just means looking them in the eye. Maybe as simple as looking them in the eye and say, I understand what you're feeling, or I know you're feeling bad, but I want you to know that we have experience in treating this disease process, and we are very successful, and I'm going to make you better. Simple things like that made my experience much better, and I know make my patients' experience much better. Yeah, and I think, you know, you mentioned earlier in the discussion that you actually had the most anxiety on the back end, and that you you were so worried about that you're going to feel this way for the rest of your life, that you're going to be sick for the rest of your life because of the chronic effects of PE. And, you know, patients may not have that insight or knowledge about the PE pathologic process, but has that changed the way that you talk to them afterwards and just emphasize, like, look, there's a recovery here. This isn't a one and done sort of thing. We can't make magically make you well just with one procedure. It's going to be, a, you know, recovery and so forth. How do, you, how do you find yourself spending more time with them on the back end talking through these things? Absolutely, one hundred percent. Because whether we we admit it or not, you know, once you have a P, you have a you have a chronic disease. You know, so you're always at higher risk of DVT or PE, and you you might not need to be in treatment forever, but you need to need to be on uh, you know a heightened vigilance for the rest of your life. So yeah, so I on the front end, I like to make patients aware of how serious their disease process is because a lot of patients do not understand that this is a life threatening disease process. So, of course, we need to explain that to them, but in a calm way, we don't need to send these patients into an anxiety tailspin. We just need to let them understand that this is a disease process that patients can die from or can live with long-term effects that will severely restrict their life. And at the, at the back end, after we're finished the procedure, or even at the front end as well, you like to explain to them we do have, obviously, treatment that is very effective and can help mitigate all these outcomes. And at the back end, I do explain to them, but you know, you have to be vigilant for the rest of your life. If this is your first time, obviously you don't need to be on medication for the rest of your life, but you do have to be vigilant and understand the signs and symptoms of recurrent venous thromboembolic disease, which I explain to them in detail and say, watch out for this and do not hesitate to come to the, to the hospital if you ever feel these symptoms again. You have to watch out for the rest of your life. It's like, do uh, you know Chris Pittman? Yeah. He's in Florida, right? He- yeah. He likes to say, once a vein patient, always a vein patient. Yeah, there um, you go. You know, it, I mean, it, the veins, once there's trouble in the veins, it's true. I mean, there's no, they're, they're never pristine again, you know. Right. They're just going to cause issues the rest of your life. So you got to, you got to 
can I, like you said, be vigilant about it? Well, um, any final thoughts before we finish up, Elon? Oh, I, you know, I really want to thank you for the opportunity to, to have this forum to explain my experience and, and the lessons I've learned from it. I, I don't think you guys realize how valuable this platform is to us clinicians out in the community. It's been life-changing for me to listen to all your uh, podcasts and to take so many lessons from them that has you know, well served my practice. So I, I just want to thank you for, for having me on and continue your good work, Aaron. <laughs> Thanks, man. I appreciate that. That makes It's a team, right? I mean, we got guys sure. like Nick, who's our engineer today, and all the hosts and all the contributors, really. It's people like you coming on and showing off your expertise that makes this platform successful. So uh, I really appreciate you sharing your story, Elon. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dong, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer, design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Social media and PR by Anne Dang, Manisha Naganathanahali, and Mandir Singh Sabli. Administrative support provided by Jim Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 